You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Lord Jesus, this morning as we open your word, um, would you change us? Would you do something in us? Often we search the scriptures um, looking for answers, but this morning, Lord, we pray that your scripture would search our hearts and that we would become more like you because of it that you would change us and transform us from the inside out, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, your son. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would anoint this place, anoint my words as they're spoken today, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna be all over the place in scripture, so you can turn, I'm not gonna be all over the place, hopefully, but I'll be all over the place in scripture, so if you wanna try to flip with me, you sure can. Otherwise, they'll be on the screen, and if you're taking notes, you can just write down the references, and you can check my work later. Um, This morning, I want to talk to you about something that's uh, kind of been brewing in my heart for quite some time. It's, why do we gather? Why do the people of God gather? And it's been a question I've been asked before, um, and... So this morning, I, I, through several different confirmations over the past couple of weeks, uh, we had an incredible discussion in our life group um, the week before last. Um, it keeps coming up in conversation and core class and again this last week that it is so important that we gather. I'm sick of talking about the pandemic, to be honest with you, but there is something that was revealed in all of us through the pandemic, wasn't it? Some things that were encouraging, some things not encouraging. Into our individual families, into our way of life, our patterns of thinking, our habits. Even within our families, there's things that were revealed in that time. You're like, you know what, I love these people, but maybe we do need a little bit of time apart from each other where we go do something else so we're not just in the same dwelling for 24 hours a day. But things that were revealed in the church as well through that time. And we saw, we've kind of seen two extremes because of it. One, the one is, uh, not extreme I would say, but one, I think one of the, the, the truths that came out in the pandemic is that um, there is nothing that should hinder the people of God from gathering. The second is the other side of that same coin, which is it is easy to find reasons to not gather. And if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you've heard me or my brother, Pastor Drew, share at length about the Western church and many of the failings of the Western church and leadership within the, um, the Western church that we've created this environment of consumerism And then people become consumers and we get frustrated that they're consumers. But then we we cater to every little thing. We say, come to church, you won't get offended, you'll never get convicted. Come sit at the table, we'll cut your meat for you, we'll fill up your glass of milk and we'll feed you. And if we don't get fed, then well, you can find another place to get fed or you can watch a, a sermon later in the week and you can get fed by some pastor who doesn't know your name or care about you.
And so we've created consumers. What can I get when I come? And it's not the way of the Lord. And so this morning, uh, I, my, my tent, hopefully you, those of you know, know me, this isn't like, a, I'm not pointing my finger at any one of you. <laughs> All right, one time I was telling somebody earlier, somebody came up to me after a message and they said, and I, there was a more convicting part of one of my messages and they said, were you, were you talking about me? Were you thinking about me? And I said, well, no, I, don't t- I tend not to think about one certain person when I'm preparing my message, but hey, if the shoe fits... <laughs> This past week, my, my dad sent my brothers and I um, an article, and he'll do that from time to time if it's a message or a, an art, a writing that pertains to us, and it's by the acclaimed apologist and philosopher, Dr. William Lane Craig. And he has this question and answer part of his, his website, and this professor um, sent him a question that was basically, what can we do to get people back to church? We've got to do something to get people to be more palatable and more um, um, uh, attractive to come and to church. And I don't really like that uh, terminology, coming to church, because we are the church. This is the building in which we, we gather, but you understand what, I'm, what he was saying. And the response by Dr. Craig, who's not a, a pastor, so to speak, but he put the responsibility on the believer. He said, it's the believer's responsibility to be a part of the body, to be a part of the gathering. And we all have a part to play in it. Oftentimes when we come to scripture, we look at it through this lens of individualism of the West. And we um, see ways that it convicts us, encourages us, and it should be that. But we need to know, especially in the New Testament context, well, and the Old Testament as well, all of this was viewed through a community, a family, a people group. And it applies to us individually, but it's written to people. All the letters from Paul are written to people. Even the, the book of Philemon, which is, uh, is written in, in the context of community. The Old Testament is written about a people, God dealing with people, not just a person, but a people group. And so we look at this scripture, we have to look at this scripture through that lens as well. And listen, I understand, like, I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years now. And I, I, I know, I can tell you horror stories. I've often said, one of the, the, the greatest blessings of being a Christian is being a part of the family of God. It's one of the greatest blessings that we have. And one of the most difficult things about being a Christian is being a part of the family of God. Is it not? My daughter will say that about my son. Dad, why is he so loud? He's always running and yelling and punching and hanging and he's just, why? Why is he like that? I'm like, he's a, that's what boys do. That's what they do. You should have seen me. We feel that same way at times with each other. Why are you the way that you are? But we need to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see his bride the way that he sees his bride.
You may have heard someone say at one time, I've heard it many times, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. And it doesn't make sense. That's like if you came to me and you said, Tony, I love you, but I, I hate your wife. I mean, it would point to a, a few things. One, it would put a kind of a limit on how well, how close we can get. Because my wife is the, one of the biggest parts of my world. But it also points to the fact that you don't know me very well. If you knew me, you would also love my wife because you would see what I see in my wife. We can't say that we love Jesus and we don't love his church. If we use that analogy of, that, that Paul uses of the body, that would be like if you came up to me and you said, Tony, I love your face. I love your head. But I, I hate your body. <laughs> you have a really stupid body. I hate it. I'd be like, man, that is such a weird thing to say. We can't separate the two. Can we? You cannot separate Jesus from his body. He is the head of the church. You cannot separate the, the bridegroom from the bride. You can't do it. And so we need to ask the Lord, Lord, give me eyes to see your people the way that you see them. And he is long-suffering. He suffers long. One of the most quoted scriptures, recited, uh, repeated scripture is that the Lord is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And we, man, we love to think about that when it comes to ourselves, but it's very difficult when it comes to someone else that is being difficult. In Acts 2, verse 42, which is a very common portion of scripture, it says this, and they, meaning the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. They were a devoted people. They were devoted. Another word that's synonymous with de devotion is faithfulness. There are a lot of things that are trendy in our culture. I wish faithfulness and devotion were trendy. But it's difficult. But the Lord loves devotion. It's one of the things that pleases his heart. Faithfulness and faithfulness to him are things that, 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 that God marvels at in a people. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 2, the first words spoken through the prophet Isaiah to the, to the people of God are, I remember your devotion. How as a bride you loved me. You followed me through a land that was unsown. He loves devotion. In the last book, in Revelation 2, that's what he says to the, the church in Ephesus, isn't it? You've lost your first love fire. You've lost your, your devotion. You've just gone through the motions. It's like a couple that, they're just roommates, but the, the love is gone. The Lord loves devotion. The Lord loves faithfulness. A people that will stay faithful to the Lord 
through trial and difficulty, when the whole world is screaming, this is so silly what you're doing. And God finds a person that is devoted to him. God finds a people who are faithful to him. That are not distracted and drawn away and wander away by, by the things of this earth and other idols, but are faithful to the Lord. The Lord loves devotion. May we be a devoted people. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? Well, in John 14, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of the things that I have spoken to you. Can you imagine the pressure the disciples must have felt at times? All right, Jesus is saying all these really you know, mind-blowing truths all the time. I got to remember all this. And he's saying he's going to leave. <laughs> and I got to try to remember. No, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the things that they were supposed to remember. And so when we talk about the apostles' teaching, we're talking about the gospels. We're talking about the letters that were written after this, written to the church. But it's a people devoted to the things of the Lord, to the scriptures. That scriptures are is the thing, is our guidebook. It's not that we lower the level of scripture to meet our experience. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship is, is the, the Greek word is koinia. It's this family-like relationship. But it also speaks to the gathering of the people. They were committed and devoted to gathering together corporately. The third is the breaking of bread, which does refer to the Lord's Supper, but isn't limited to only that. It's, it's the going into each other's homes and sharing a meal with one another, enjoying and spending time together and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the place of prayer. A.W. Tozer said, in the early church, if you were to remove the Holy Spirit 99.9% .9 of everything that happened would cease to have happened if you remove the Holy Spirit. In our church today, and when he was writing this, this was almost 80, 90 years ago, he said, if you remove the Holy Spirit from our gatherings and what we did, 99.9% .9 of what was going on would continue to go on seamlessly. He is looking for a praying people. And so what was the result? It's a, a phrase that we see throughout the book of Acts, that everyone was filled at awe and wonder at what was happening. There was a fear of the Lord upon them. They were devoted. So I, I really, honestly, I could end the message there, but I won't because I spent a lot of time preparing this week. So, so why did God's people gather? There are many reasons why we could gather here this morning. Maybe your friends are here. Maybe you like the music. Maybe you like the preaching. Maybe you heard last week that our pastor had a mustache. <laughs> and that's why you came. There's all sorts of reasons why we gather. And there's many more reasons that I could give you, but I have four this morning that I want to give you. Why do God's people gather? The first reason is this. It is what the Bible teaches. 
That's actually all I have. <laughs> we could just end there, right? It's what the Bible teaches. Both explicitly and implicitly. The Bible teaches that we should gather together. And it's actually unbiblical to not participate in the local body. It's unbiblical to not participate in the local body. To call yourself a believer and not participate and be a part of what God is doing in a corporate setting. Hebrews 10, verse 23, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching, meaning the judgment day approaching. He uses this phrase, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Jesus, First Peter says, that is our living hope. So it's Jesus. We hold on to, to Jesus that he who is he who has promised is faithful. He will do what he says. So how do we stay in this place of unswerving faith? Well, one of the ways is that we may consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. In the Greek, actually, the, wor the words are much more direct. It's like to call out the blind spots in each other. <laughs> To say, hey, this is going on in your life and you, 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 gotta, you gotta knock it off. That we, we, we actually need each other. And we don't know the context completely of why people weren't meeting together or had the habit of, but the writer of Hebrews is, is saying emphatically, let us not give up meeting together. I think the main reason is because the enemy seeks to isolate us. He wants you alone. You could be walking through the garden and it's a beautiful day and all of a sudden a snake slithers up and you're all by yourself. Starts whispering the lies. Is God really as good as he says he is? Maybe you don't need him after all. Your husband doesn't know what he's talking about. There's a reason it says in Genesis it's not good for mankind to be alone. It's like a, you've heard me use this analogy before, it's like a, a pack of lions, right? They look at a herd and they look for the, the injured or the, or, or the small, or they just look, they start chasing it and try to isolate. Once they isolate it from the, the herd, it's easy, easy pickings. So is true. The enemy wants to isolate you. This is also why he loves to cause division within churches and why God hates division. There are a few things that, that are explicit in scripture that God hates and he hates division. A unified people under the banner of Jesus are an unstoppable people and the enemy would seek to divide us. Psalm 95 verse six, it says, come, let us, bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. It's this corporate invitation. Come, let us. 
We'll come together and we will bow down before the Lord. We'll worship our Lord, our God, our maker. He is my maker. He is my God. He is my savior, but he is our God and our savior collectively. Acts chapter five. It says that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the bed in mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. To me, this is the, the standard of what the church is supposed to be. And any lack is not in the Lord. But it says they used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade was, was next to the temple, and it was kind of this big open kind of free space. It'd be like if we rented out a rec center or something like that in our town and we, we started meeting there. It was the only place that was really big enough to house that, or to, to house that many people together for the corporate gathering. And someone would get up and share and they would, and they would, um, they would have preaching and they would sing. And again, the same thing happens that we read in Acts chapter two is that there's a sense of awe and wonder, fear of the Lord. It said no one else dared them. That means like the, the kind of the wishy-washy people didn't want to didn't mess. But there, there was continually those who were added to the number day by day by day because they were seeing the power of God in the midst of God's people. Acts 20, it says this in verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. I hear complaints about our services being too long. <laughs> but Paul, you keep actually reading on. There's a young man, Eutychus, who falls out of a window, and he's healed. And then it says, Paul preached till the morning. <laughs> but it says, on the first day of the week, they met. And this was common for the early church. They met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of it is because Saturday was the, the Jewish day of Sabbath, so they weren't going to uh, meet on Saturday. Many of them, even though they were free from the, the, the laws of uh, the Mosaic law because they had been fulfilled in the, in the life of Jesus, they still culturally ad adhered to all of those Mosaic laws. And so they didn't meet on, on Saturday, but they met on Sunday. And they call it the Lord's Day because Sunday was the day that the Lord was risen out of the grave. But it also speaks even more so to like the, this principle, uh, the same principle as tithing, the first fruits. The first thing they would do, and many of them had to work on Sundays. Most of us have Sundays off, but they worked on Sundays, so they would get up really early, really, really early on Sunday morning, even in the middle of the night, Saturday night, into Sunday morning, or they would meet in the evening on Sunday, Sunday evening. But it was meant to be like the first fruits of their week. For many people, Sunday is kind of like the end of the week, right? It's the last day of the weekend, and Monday is the start of our work week. And so we treat it like that. 
we go through Monday through Saturday living like however we want to, and then we come to church and kind of get our hearts right with the Lord again, and then we go back to the same pattern after day after day after day. When the early church, it was like, Lord, I am coming. I'm giving you the first fruits of my week. My time and my energy, I'm prioritizing this above other things. Imagine if we held service at 5.30 in the morning on Sundays. Drew would be here bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but... (laughs) It was a priority. They were devoted to the gathering. Even John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, he says, I, John, the church, David Wilkerson said, the church of I, John, it was just him. <laughs> but even as he was in exile in the Isle of Patmos, he reminded himself, he said, I, John, your brother in tribulation. Even in this place of, of, of isolation, he's reminded that this is not the best way. I am your brother, and I'm still your brother, even if I'm hundreds or thousands of miles away, I am still here. And then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice. And then we have the rest of the book of Revelation, which is incredible. It is what the Bible teaches, that the people of God should gather. Amen? Number two, we are the body. If you profess Jesus as Lord of your life, you cannot remove yourself from the body. What happens if you, if you lop off one of your fingers? Right? You have a short window of time in which to try to reattach it, otherwise it's gone forever. If you remove yourself from the body, you will not last long on your own. For spiritually, you wither up and you die. You're completely useless for king, kingdom work. Wouldn't it be weird if you woke up one morning and your arm was just like not working that day and you just were like, what's up with my arm today, you know? It's like, it's just not working. You would go to the hospital, right? We are the body. And so if one of us chooses just not to do what it's supposed to do, there's something wrong. We should seek help. First Peter chapter 4 verse 7 says, the end of things is near. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We, when we gather, we should come with an attitude of what do I have to contribute? What do I have to give? And First Peter, he's pretty clear. Each of us should use whatever gift we have received for what? to serve others. So what does that mean? That means that all of us have been given a gift of some sort. Some of us have more gifts than others. We know that through the the parable of the talents. 
But no one is exempt from this. Not one person, not one human being that follows Jesus is exempt from this. All of us have been gifted with something. And what are you doing to contribute? And think about how the, the, the gravity of what he's saying. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. We should be careful what we say. We should regard our words carefully. If anyone serves, they should do with this with the strength that God provides, not, not striving, so that what? God may be praised. Through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever, so that he might receive glory. That people might look upon God's people and say, I don't understand it. I don't see it. I don't, I don't see how, how, how this is possible, that they would treat each other like this, that they would love each other so well, that the impossible is, is happening among them. People are being healed and people are being set free. How is this possible? If we have a mindset of, you know, it's really not important if I'm there or not, it, it really points, it reveals the value in which we see ourselves. I'm not very valuable, so what I contribute isn't really that important. Or we forget the eternal perspective or the eternal fruit of our life. That's not what God is saying about you. Instead, he's saying, I've given you a gift to steward. And so when you stand before him one day, the question will be asked, did you steward what I gave you? Or did you bury it? There is an eternal perspective that we need to have. And we need to come to a place of maturity where we are more concerned with what we can give than what we can get. When I used to pastor Chi Alpha students, it was like clockwork. And so I'm talking to you Chi Alpha students right now because the upperclassmen, the juniors and the seniors or super seniors, they would, and a lot of times inevitably they'd, they'd, they'd get to that point in their college career and they'd been in Chi Alpha for quite some time and they at times would be like, you know what, I've, I've, heard, I've heard him preach this message before. He preaches that every, every year on the first, uh, first day of the year, uh, of the school year. I've heard that one before. Or I'm not really getting fed anymore. And I had to have this conversation. Listen, this is not for you anymore. There's a place of maturity where you're not looking for me to feed you. But instead, you're rising to this place that says, I have something to contribute. That's what maturity is, isn't it? It's not the place of selfishness. It's a place of selflessness. Where it says, what I have to contribute is valuable and then we know the principle is better to give than to receive. First Corinthians 14, it says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, if by some chance you come together? No, it says, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation, and everything must be done so that the church may be built up. That's kind of a high, high call, 
Is anybody ready for a solo this morning? Did any of you come ready with a song, with a word? Now, when we gather together, we should come with an expectation. Lord, what do you want to do? And is there something you want to do towards me? Not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus. And for what? The building up of the church. So there's a responsibility that each one of us has when we gather. Lord, what do I have to contribute? Ephesians 2, 19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building joined together and rises up to become the holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is, there's no plan B. The church is God's plan A. And when you give your life to Jesus, there's, the spirit comes and resides in you. When you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, the spirit comes upon you. But there's also a corporate uh, falling of his presence that comes upon his people. And when people enter the place, they say, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. This is the dwelling in which the, the spirit lives. So two, we are the body. Number three, why do we gather? Because Jesus is worthy. It's easy to be lazy, isn't it? It's easy to be, make excuses for yourself. You're lying in bed and you're like, it's so warm and cozy in here. I don't wanna get out of bed. It's cold outside. I don't want to go to church or I don't want to get up and spend time with the Lord. Well, so the best things in our life are not going to be easy. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm always talking about values. Because what we value should be what, what really directs and leads and guides our life. So we need, it's important that we have the values of the kingdom. But like you've heard me say hundreds of times before, oftentimes what we do and what we value don't line up. And so what we say we value isn't true in reality because our life doesn't reflect it. We cannot say that we value Christ if we do not pr pr prioritize the gathering of his people. It's the same thing that I said earlier. We can't say, Jesus, I love you. I don't want to spend time with your bride. Dr. William Lane Craig said this in that article I read this week. He says, the fundamental misconception of many people is that the reason for attending church is not what one gets out of it, is what one gets out of it, excuse me. So if one doesn't get anything out of attending church, one thereby thinks himself excused from his Christian duty. And this is utterly misconceived. The reason we attend church is not to get something, but to give something, namely corporate worship, which is due to God. Not to mention the love of others and service to them. The reason for, quote unquote, getting out of bed on a Sunday morning, sometimes in the cold and in the dark, is to render God to God and, and our brethren what we owe them. The attitude I described earlier is reprehensibly selfish. How can a Christian who loves God deny him what is due to him? 
and ignore the needs of brothers and sisters around him. We gather because Jesus is worthy of a collective offering of worship. We often talk about this, the secret place and being alone with God. We, we need both of those things. We need to spend a time alone with the Lord, but we need, your voice matters here. Whether or not you can sing or not is irrelevant in the Lord's eyes. But part of this collective song of Jesus is worthy. And we sing it, he's worthy, we sang it today. But sometimes don't we forget that Jesus is worthy. Have we forgotten that he's worthy? He's worthy of your sacrifice. He's worthy of you crucifying your flesh. He's worthy of doing the hard things when no one's around and no one's looking. He's worthy. Jesus is worthy. I have to remind myself sometimes who he is, that he is Savior and Lord that he is master and king, that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah and the son of the living God. He is the Alpha and Omega and the beginning of the end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the vine. He is the bread of life, the water of life. He is the only gate. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He is the great physician, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000s, and the word of God. He is the great I am. He is the image of the invisible God, the ruler of all creation, the firstborn of the dead, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He is the one who holds all things together by his powerful word. He is perfect love. He is Jesus. He is our fortress and our strong tower. He is our strength. And our ever-present help in time of need, he is our champion, our deliverer, our redeemer, our revender, the lifter of our heads and the healer of our hearts. He cannot be contained. He cannot be overcome. His goodness cannot be exaggerated. His grace cannot be exhausted. His knowledge and wisdom are unsearchable. His love is unfathomable. He is Jesus and he is worthy and he is the only one found worthy of all of our time all of our energy, all of our affection, all of our resources, all of our effort, all of our devotion and on our sacrifice. Jesus alone is worthy. And so if for no other reason you get out of your bed to gather or go to life group, it's because Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And if for some reason you're like, you know what? This is not what I want it to be. This is not what I was hoping it to be. Be a part of the change. If people are negative and critical, do not be negative and critical. Be encouraging. If people are showing, not showing appropriate enthusiasm, be the catalyst for enthusiasm. This is the place of maturity of people who will say, this is the culture, this is the culture of heaven and, and what his word says. And so I'm gonna be, be found within that group rather than the complainers. Amen.
And number four. Again, there are many more reasons, but we just got four today. Four is his presence falls in a unique way when we're together. It's kind of that paradoxical, it's hard to explain, it's hard to even put your finger on it, but it's there. He's there. It's like we sense his presence when we're together. And listen, there are many days where I'm spending time with the Lord and I don't necessarily feel his presence, but I know he's there. But I can't think of a, a time when we've met in the past few years where the Lord's presence didn't show up and wasn't here. Where we, we, we all feel collectively and corporately this, this, the upward pull. That we're just strangers passing through that we are called upward, that we are just here for a time and one day we will be called home and we will be with him in our real home, in the place that Jesus said he would prepare for us. It's the intangible, tangible. We can't bottle it up and we can't contain it, but we all sense it. There was a woman who came recently this, this fall to church and she hadn't been in church in 30 years. And as she walked through the doors, she said she began to describe the familiarity of God's presence. I remember what he feels like. I remember the touch of the Lord. And that morning the Lord touched her and she turned her life to Jesus. But again, this is precedent we see throughout Scripture. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, it's the dedication of the temple. And Solomon could have, maybe he could have just done it by himself. And it could have been his great, great achievement, which it was a great achievement. But it wasn't meant to be something that only Solomon enjoyed. It was meant to be for God's people. In verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. We won't read all of it today, but they, they then they start the, the animal sacrifice. They sacrifice over 200,000 animals. It's just astounding because Jesus is worthy. God is worthy. His presence is that valuable. There's no sacrifice that is too great. In verse 13, then it says this, the trumpeters and the musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voice in praise to the Lord, singing, he is good and his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. They brought a beautiful sacrifice before the Lord. Nothing was off the table. And then they began to lift their voices in worship. And the presence of the Lord fell. And it was so strong that those who, who were supposed to be doing their duty were unable to do so because of the presence of the Lord. The Lord interrupted the plan 
They had it all figured out and planned out and the Lord came. And I know we hear it often in churches. Lord, if you want to interrupt it, our service, please do. But make sure it's within this six-minute window that we've given you to move. Otherwise, we are on a tight schedule. One hour and six minutes is all we have today. If we're real and we want God to move, when he does, it might not look like we think it's going to look. It might interrupt things and make us uncomfortable at times. But we were made for him and not the other way around. Again, in Acts chapter 4, in the, the, this corporate prayer meeting we see after the, they start experiencing persecution, it says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That would be freaky, wouldn't it? If the literal foundations started to shake. There's sometimes when we're all dancing and jumping in here and people downstairs are seeing this floor shake and they're like, oh Jesus, please keep this floor from caving in. <laughs> One of the, I won't say who, but somebody said one, one Sunday night, it was just kind of getting wild in here and I saw the floor shaking. So I just, I went to the back. <laughs> I was like, the women and children's fine. Just let them go. I'll be in the back. When we gather together, we, we get a glimpse, like a foretaste of, of what's to come. Scott and the team can come. We, we just get a glimpse. Paul says that we, we see through a glass dimly. We don't see, we, we see in part, we know in part. We don't, we don't see perfectly, but we, we get this glimpse of one day when we're all with the Lord in a never-ending service. <laughs> And each one of us will have a part to play. And there are those times, don't you feel it? Those, those times in worship where the presence of the Lord just comes so strong. It's like this glimpse where all eyes are focused on Jesus. And you feel his closeness. It's like the gap between heaven and earth just closes for a moment. And we get this glimpse of one day when we stand before him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is only one found worthy. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, he tells us about this day. It says this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The, the gathering of the nations, the people. What I love about the church is that we all come from different places. And even in, in our church, I think Pastor Drew said, there's only over 15 nations represented here. That's a glimpse of heaven, but even more than that. That all tongues, all tribes that declare the name of Jesus will be gathered in together. And it says, and they were all wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they all cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their face before the Lord and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is our destiny as believers. And there are these moments that when we come together, where God gives us that glimpse, that we all cry out in one voice, in one accord, in one sound, unified, tuned to the Holy Spirit, lifting up the name of Jesus. Look at what you've done, Lord. You've redeemed a people for yourself, a kingdom of priests that must tend to your presence day and night. Not be found lazy and wanting, but faithful. Could we stand? I'm not saying there's never a reason to miss church. I know kids get sick and come up but the Lord is calling us back to a place where we prioritize the gathering of the people of his people giving him the first fruits of our week spurring one another on with encouragement and love serving each other preferring one another above ourselves ourselves to the scriptures to fellowship with one another to breaking bread and sharing meals in homes may we be a people devoted to the place of prayer and corporate worship so that we might be gripped with awe and wonder of what Christ is doing in our midst so that he might receive the glory forever and ever. Amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.